I V M. Hello, you are listening to the Matushila podcast, and I'm Hamsini Harika. On this episode, we're looking at the recent events that have taken place in the South China Sea. On the 12th of July, the Permanent Court of Arbitration ruled that there was no legal basis for China to claim historic rights to resources under its Nine Dash Line. The tribunal said that the Stratly Islands were not capable of generating extended maritime zones. It also found that China violated the Philippines' sovereign rights in the region. Foreign military aircraft, this is Chinese Navy. A court that ruled on something that he has not jurisdiction to rule on, based on a geopoliticized lawsuit filed by the Philippines against China. The source of contest is UNCLOS, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Seas, signed in 1982. I'm now going to turn to Guru Ayer, my colleague and former naval officer, to explain to us the essence of UNCLOS. Guru, can you tell us why the UNCLOS is so problematic in the South China Sea? To put it in a nutshell, uh, the sovereign area of any state, twelve nautical miles from what we call the baseline, approximately twenty-four kilometers, is the territorial sea. In Westphalian terms, you can say that that is the boundary line, akin to a land border. Beyond that, up to two hundred nautical miles, that is roughly about four hundred kilometers from the baseline, is what one calls as exclusive economic zone or eez where the coastal state has the rights to carry out research seabed mapping uh, fishing looking out for mineral oil etc the area up to 400 nautical miles that is a eez can also be used by the other states including the the militaries for exploration purposes after informing the coastal state now when unclos was written the text was clear about the size and scope of the maritime zones but it was written for an ideal coastline and not an irregular one so when we come to specifics of south china sea where you have wavy coastlines it leaves open a range of questions which are pretty complicated for example under ideal conditions the equidistant line between two coastlines can be easily measured but when it is fringed by islands or reefs however should they be measured from the mainland from the rock which is furthest out from the beach or from somewhere in the between or somewhere closest so there are a lot of gray areas the issues in the south china sea have made the loopholes of the uncross obvious If you look at this case, you have numerous claimants. They have no established historical or legal base for determining who has rights over what. So, would you say this is where UNCLOS fails? No, I wouldn't call it a failing of the UNCLOS because the way international laws are framed, there is always room for a little bit of ambiguity when states have contestation. Now, here to this specific uh, case. Unclos talks about rocks as and islands as two different things. It doesn't provide clear and measurable guideline about how to distinguish between the two. So in South China Sea, you have features which are submerged at what we call at high tide, but in the low tide, 
they become rocks so now the question is how does one interpret it is it a rock or is it an island so in this specific case the mischief reef on which china has erected uh, a huge infrastructure project uh, it's uh, made a runway it's made a station and it can probably be used as a future naval base by uh, using hundreds of its uh, dredging equipment dredgers which put sand and it's literally created land out of an island so these are ambiguous faces uh, which have not been covered by yun clause but they are open to interpretation and that is where international law as a soft law comes into place but that's where the tribunal steps in because the tribunal said sorry boss these are rocks yeah. they are not capable of uh, extending your eez based on a rock and then reclaiming it yeah but this has profound uh, geopolitical implications for all the stakeholders right for china for us for philippines uh, what do you think the most major change this will make or will it even make a change at all uh, i would approach it from two angles a the normative position that if international law has to be adhered to then all the states must conform to international legal order but then that is a motherhood statement that is we wish that there were no problems in the world and every nation uh, would behave in a particular way that's not the case we live in a world which is driven with conflicts and when we come to what we call the power politics then the nation which has uh, the maximum power or which is more powerful than a uh, neighbor would always assert its right so this is what is at play here here you see you have a problem where international law is a soft law us has not signed uh, the un clause because us navy had deep reservations about a concept what we call the freedom of navigation operations that they want to operate on the oceans of the world unfettered unabashed so there here we have the two largest powers of the world are interpreting the international law at their own convenience that you use international institutions when it is convenient to you and when it is not convenient you make the international institutions or international law null and void and say that fine now i have the power to enforce what i want to i would do it so this is real politic at its best because if you think about it you have international law but you don't but when your two major players don't really abide to it it means very little but doesn't china like every other state that signed yun clause have to follow tribunal's award that's a very good question so when china refuted uh, the decision by the international court it pointed out two instances as to why it should not necessarily abide by the decision it cited the us dismissal of the 1986 judgment of the international court of justice that awarded reparations to nicaragua us had a long running fight with nicaragua where in the court said that for military and paramilitary activities in and against nicaragua us should pay reparations us said sorry it doesn't work we uh, all of us know about the uh, falkland war in 1982 when more than 4000 miles away uh, uk sends its aircraft carrier and its navy to fight over what a small piece of land a small piece of territory so it's it's clear classic power play at work this is what every great power or power that is capable of exercising its might does but then uh, what i am wondering though is uh, 
another aspect of the South China Sea that everyone's been talking about is China's getting so aggressive. Uh, would you call China's position in the South China Sea aggressive, considering their military buildup? There is absolutely no doubt that China's position is pretty aggressive. It's uh, made its displeasure known uh, whenever any ships have uh, forayed uh, into South China Sea. Chinese naval ships and uh, Chinese coast guard routinely uh, intercept uh, the foreign vessels. In one instance, uh, a Chinese coast guard uh, cutter sank a Vietnamese fishing vessel. So, I mean, what what greater uh, evidence of aggression do you want that a benign object like a fishing vessel gets sunk by a coast guard ship? So, its aggressive designs are in no doubt. The moment this award was done, US promptly gave a frigate to Philippines. So you see now there is a there is a great power game that is happening here. US has always favored freedom of navigation ops, fun ops, which China fiercely uh, disagrees with. US in its drawdown from Afghanistan and Iraq is now shifting its focus in the form of pivot to Asia Pacific. So you see there is a there is a greater game going on here wherein China wants to say very clearly that this is my backyard and I will operate here with impunity. No external power shall come here and show off. Yeah, this is also evident in uh, their modernization. If you look at the Chinese Navy from the 1980s, they had their broad-based modernization programs. Uh, if you look over the last few years, their southern fleet is now one of their biggest arms. It uh, now travels as far as countries in the Indian Ocean, perhaps even beyond. Uh, it's armed itself uh, pretty well with fancy equipment from ASBMs to frigates and it's continuing to do so. And what is, of course, the most interesting point of this military modernization is uh, air power. Because they've been building airfields through the South China Sea. And when they're reclaiming land of rocks, as we've said, uh, they're being used for military bases. They're being used for airfields, for runways and so on. So this only complicates the issue because if you reclaim land uh, in a contested space and then build an airfield on it, Obviously, your neighbors are going to look at it as an aggressive posture. But let's move a little further away. If we're saying the South, uh, the Southern, uh, the South Sea Fleet of China uh, is moving closer to the Indian Ocean, what does this mean for India? India should be worried not in the immediate term, but in the long term. I would say that as per India's uh, maritime strategy, which was unveiled in October last year, South China Sea is a secondary area of interest. What is more important here is to see the behavior of China. The behavior of China in asserting its sovereign claims. We still have a land border dispute which is not being resolved. Now, one has to think that would China at some later date assert its aggressive maritime intent in order to hedge its bet and solve its land border dispute? The answer is perhaps yes, it would. But then don't you think that we can also make use of it? Because um, even if the tribunal's verdict means very little in practical terms, it's still established a normative base where it's refuted the 9-9. Don't you think this could also maybe help in our boundary dispute? 
yeah that's a very good question what probably we could do is a we have already occupied the high moral ground by amicably resolving our maritime boundary dispute with bangladesh india abided in its all its uh, fullness when uh, international court uh, of arbitration awarded uh, the uh, claims to bangladesh but the moral high ground also has to be backed up by a military power and b very very clever and uh, coercive diplomacy so having stated our maximalist position here we can always go to the international court of arbitration and say that yes see we've resolved our maritime uh, dispute now if there is a land border dispute whether it would whether it should go to international court of arbitration or not that's for both the parties to decide but china would always like to be resolved bilaterally it's also interesting because india has also been modernizing its own navy i mean we want to be a blue water navy and we have said that the south china sea is a part of our extended neighborhood i think it's also important to point out that 55% of india's trade passes through the south china sea so for that for is a real interest because if conflicts or hostilities escalate in the region then right of passage and freedom of navigation are not just rhetoric that's echoed in ministry statements these are real interests for india yeah yeah i would uh, add on to that at present our biggest in- national interest is at least 8% economic growth so having said that if in any way our trade is going to get affected passing through south china sea that should definitely worry the policy makers and india should back on using the freedom of navigation ops concept to say that it will object if its trade gets affected or if its trade gets blocked so in this again let's come to the concept of swing power between us china and india india should always try to see if between us and china they've got greater problems then how do we operate which what is the position that we take the answer is but obvious that if us is military power is going to be seen in indo pacific and south china sea india can take half a step back and be rest assured that the sea lanes would be left uninterrupted but yes if us were to step back and recede into the background that is then india should worry and stake its claim maybe a little more militarily maybe a little more aggressively maybe have naval maneuvers to exercise its pawn ops yes okay i'm not very sure if things are as black or white as that but they never are in international <laughs> relations they aren't but i think what is important is that india's interests in the region shouldn't be hampered by geopolitics between china and whether it's southeast asian countries or china and the us i think what's important is always to look at it saying what is india's stake here because whether Absolutely. or not us is going to recede in the background as long as it doesn't hamper india's interests i think that india's position currently is a good position to be at absolutely india must always focus on its growth strategy its traffic flowing uninterrupted with due course uh, due recourse to uh, 
the state's uh, permissions and uh, international law. Thanks, Guru. That's it for this episode of the Takshashila podcast. If you agree or disagree with anything that we've said so far, reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn or visit our website at takshashila.org.in. This is Hamsni Hariharan at Nandi Hills for the Takshashila Institution.